I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. certain world there is always music which can be listened to in good company welcome to friday 15 the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great tunes and allocate 15 minutes to both today we speak to dr sally ann huxtable the principal curator of modern contemporary design at the national museum of scotland and editor of the review of the pre-raphaelite society about the enduring appeal of the pre-raphaelites Rihanna's beautiful Same Old Mistakes is a note-perfect cover of Tame Impala's 2015 original.
Sally, after some yep. 150, 60 years since the founding of the Blue Raphaelite Society, please explain its enduring appeal. Uh, certainly, Royalfield. Well, for me, um, and there's, I suppose legions of people that um, still adore them or kind of find profound truths in the work of the Blue Raphaelites, they are particularly interesting and appealing because they were born out of an age of conflict and uncertainty. So the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood was founded in 1848. Ooh, and all that, across that's Europe that year. That's my favourite year. Is it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the year of year revolution. Of well. <laughs> it was the year of revolution. Um, and so not only were there revolutions going on right across Europe, but also in Britain, there was the Chartist uprising. Anyway, so the second half of the 19th century was a time of, sort of great uncertainty. Religious truths are falling away. People are moving out of the countryside into cities. Social norms are changing. And for me, the Pre-Raphaelites offered new, were then modern, and I suppose still are in some ways modern myths for the modern world. So they were dealing not only with reimagining and reconfiguring old stories, biblical stories, Arthurian legends, the matter of Britain as they always call it. But they were also kind of rethinking themes like love and death and you know, all, all the little things. Um <laughs> the things that really are quite essential Okay. So yeah, that's for, for the art and poetry, that's what they were doing. Alright. We got a bunch of blokes and the world's up in ferment and they decide to hearken back to uh, a pre-Raphaelite style of art. What exactly was that? Well, the pre-Raphaelite style of art is a bit of a strange misnomer because actually they liked Raphael. So they kind of included him. What they wanted to get away from was the art that came after Raphael in the Renaissance. They loved the early medieval art and to some extent the Renaissance art and the kind of I hope say flatness, but the kind of the use of colour and almost unreality of it, even though they're one of their tenets is truth to nature. So it's kind of weird mix of looking back to the kind of almost unreal art before they start artists up bringing in chiaroscuro, you know, light and shadow and and all that stuff and sort of darkness into their pictures. They want to look back to this kind of world of light and colour, and that has a sort of religious bent to it. It isn't necessarily religious, what, what they're doing in the 19th century. Some of them were, some of them weren't. But it wasn't just a slavish copying of that either. It was kind of creating something new for the new age. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. No, no. It's, it was sort of drawing on the path. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things that I found really interesting about the Pre-Raphaelites is by the time you get to this art movement, you have art critics, don't you? So it feels yes. very modern, kind of looking back, you know in the time of Raphael or any of those kind of classic uh, Renaissance paintings, critics would have been the people that bought the paintings, but there was no kind of infrastructure, there's no meters, no feedback loop. Could you describe that kind of sense of art criticism of the time and actually what those critics actually thought of what the Pre-Raphaelites were all about? Well, there's two critics, but one that most associated them with with the Pre-Raphaelites is John Ruskin. So Ruskin was making, already making a name for himself, had made a name for himself at this time. He was art history professor at Oxford 
and he was obviously the great champion of Turner. But he saw in the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood a, a new form of art that he, it really kind of aligned with his own views on art, and particularly depictions of nature and, and truth to nature, which initially was quite strong in Pre-Raphaelitism. It sort of goes um, down the pan later a bit. So initially, Ruskin was actually fundamental in popularising their work. He then fell out with almost all of them because no one ever got on with Ruskin for more than a few weeks. Um, he was a very difficult man. So it's really not just a product of the art critic per se, but you find in the mid-19th century, it's a product of the sort of so the growth in the printing press and a book, the publication of books. So you've got this proliferation of media, art journals, popular journals and books going on. So more people are sort of finding their voices in that. So again, part of this very modern world. So Ophelia is probably the most recognisable pre-Raphaelite painting. Because we're on a podcast, and it's probably not necessarily the best medium to actually uh, to, to talk about pre-Raphaelite art in terms of a figurative yeah. what it looks like, <laughs> but you're going to make a damn good attempt. So describe that picture, paint that picture in our minds, a picture which I'm sure most people listening will go, oh yeah, I know the one she means. Okay, so Ophelia is a painting by John Everett Millay and it hangs in Tate Britain, usually. It was, oh gosh, it dates about 1851, 1852, isn't it, off the top of my head? I'm really, really bad at dates, which is probably not good for a historian. Just say circa, um, and in that you're painting, Circa, yes, yeah, circa, circa 1850. And it is an absolutely stunning piece of work. So the painting is the scene from, obviously, Shakespeare's Hamlet, where Ophelia has uh, woven her garden, uh, garlands, even not her gardens, her garlands of flowers and has fallen into the water and is essentially going to a watery death. And she's sort of floating serenely in this incredibly realistic river with flowers floating around, with reeds all around her. And Millet painted that on location, but scene and this this was quite a revolutionary thing the pre-raphaelites did go out into the field literally or, or to the riverbank and painted from nature and millet was probably at that point the, the pre-raphaelite artists that did that the most so yes and the model used was elizabeth siddle who uh, later came down to gabrielle rossetti's wife um, and she was an artist and poet in her own right as well which i will add to that because it's not entirely all men. Um, it is obviously male-dominated as art was at that time, but actually they did ask Christina Rossetti, the poet, to join the Brotherhood, and she didn't want to. But so, yes, so Ophelia did, is the most. So, so did, <laughs> she didn't want to hang out with the boys. <laughs> so did Mille kind of bring her home to paint her? I always thought that he did, and he put her in a bathtub, and she died of pneumonia. Am I getting my pre-Raphaelite well, no. models mixed up here? <laughs> Um, no, no, Elizabeth Siddle, um, he did take her home and pop her in the bathtub and she did catch the flu, I think, or pneumo- and pneumo- then pneumonia. She didn't actually die from that. She, ah. she died later from laudanum but, but, but poisoning. This, but this, for the sake of art, shouldn't she have died? A much more tragic and then classic story, she'd have popped her clogs. Just having a oh, douse of pneumonia. What's more, tra- what's more tragic than laudanum? Rossetti and Elizabeth Siddle were both, did both quite like their drugs. He liked chloral and she liked laudanum. And, um, is that part yeah, of the reason more... why we like, <laughs> we like these bunch of people, isn't it? Because they're artists in the classic sense that we kind of understand today. In the widest sense of the word, artists, you know, they took their drugs, they, they had an eye for, for, for pretty girls, up to, up to no good. Discuss. Well, uh, yeah, up to a point, and that that 
that view of them is one that really comes out in the 1960s. So the whole idea about the world being in upheaval in 1848, well, as we all know, in the 1960s, there was a huge amount of social change going on. And so actually the counterculture then really championed the pre-Raphaelites. And you get the Ken, Ken Russell film of uh, Dante's Inferno, if, if anyone's ever seen that, with dissolute Dante, Dante Gabriel Rossetti. So yes, no, we do love them because they kind of create that idea of the sort of bohemian drug adults. Um, artists living on the edge, living outside of the mainstream. They, so are, they you are the saying, counterculture. Are you saying that the art world in London in the 1850s invented Bohemia as opposed to Prague, which was in Bohemia? Yeah, I think so. Well, Paris well and London. <laughs> well done. Um, yeah. <laughs> so let, let's just recap. So, Millet did bring home Ophelia, and then you're going to tell me why you've chosen Sam Cooke's Bring On Home To Me as your piece of music today. Okay, well, yes, I could have chosen something like Wagner, which would probably be more apt, but firstly, Sam Cooke's Bring It On Home To Me is one of my favourite songs ever. Mm-hmm. And my favourite recording of this is a live recording, live at the Harlem Square. And in it, it's one of the most passionate songs of longing for something that's just a little bit out of reach, um, a person you've lost, for, for love that can't ever be again, that I've ever, ever heard. And that's what this quite central to particularly the work of Dante Gabriel Rossetti, also Edward Burne-Jones. It's this quest and this impossible love, this impossible desire that can never be. And for me, it just fits in beautifully with that. This song gon' tell you how I feel I know you've been gone away from me a long time But listen, baby, if you ever change your mind About leaving, leaving me behind Oh, bring it to me Bring all that good 
who was William Morris's wife and possibly Rossetti's lover, we're not quite sure. She was actually seen as incredibly mas- supposedly masculine looking because she wasn't sort of a delicate kind of female beauty, pale. The, the norm was, was she blonde, blue-eyed, fee- feeble but delicate, delicate woman. It was that kind of fairy-like vision of, of domestic femininity and she's not, she just doesn't fit that at all. The, the women he painted were actually slightly marginal in society. They weren't middle class themselves. They were seamstresses, prostitutes in some, uh, or sex workers in some um, instances, or women that kind of were in between all these categories. Um, and Jane Morris, you know, didn't come from a great middle class background. And her beauty was something that was recognized by Morris and Rossetti, but actually it wasn't a mainstream beauty. And a lot of people found it very challenging, as a lot of people still do, because even now, some people find it a kind of barbaric kind of beauty, almost. Really? I've had plenty of people barbaric? tell me that. Yes, gen- he's genuinely, got long, genuinely, glowing dark locks. He's got beautiful cherry red lips. I know. She's a beautiful woman. She's, 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 she was a most gorgeous woman, and you look at photographs of her as well. She's a truly handsome, beautiful, strong woman. Tell you what, like that. All people like that. I tell you what, it it certainly went mm. it went against norms of beauty in the in the late nineteenth century. Okay, all right. So, what I do think is somewhat subversive. I've never really noticed it before, which says a lot about me, considering I think I know a a teensy weensy bit about art. But that peach that she's holding is that supposed to be a naughty bit? <laughs> well, um, because if I'm looking at emoticons now, a peach basically means you know denotes um, a lady's bum. Oh, it's a- it's actually a pomegranate. Oh right, sorry. So, but but yes, I mean it's it's, it's kind of multi-layered. So that the the pomegranate does symbolise it, it symbolises the story of Pro- uh, Prospina. Prospina, I can't even say it. Um, Prospine in this um, and her journey into the underworld. It also does uh, sort of symbolise female sexuality and, and it's also slightly redolent of Eve and mm. the, the apple of knowledge and of sexuality. So yes, you're right. I think that is an opportune time for us to end, Doc. Right? Uh, because the apple of knowledge that's what this is all about isn't it that's what we get an insight to looking at the work of the pre-raphaelites it's a case of knowledge of wider and deeper human truths sally Huxtable, absolutely can i say yes big up to you and thank you for coming on to friday 15. oh thank you very much it's been a great pleasure there you go simple oh, okay yeah 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 oh i like you you're fun <laughs> There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss
you're looking for action was written by Sergio Pizzorno of Kasabian and is the 8th track on the album For Crying Out Loud. Released in April 2017, it was originally intended to be much shorter than its full 8 minutes. British lovers rock singer, best known for her work between the mid-1970s and the early 1980s, her 1975 single, Caught You In A Light, is regarded as the first ever lovers rock single.
hope you enjoyed this week's show. Don't forget, you can follow the show's progress on Facebook by simply typing in Friday15. You can also find us on Twitter, where you can follow me, where I'm at Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. Now, every Thursday, you can jump onto Twitter and tweet me and nominate a song for me to put into this week's Friday 15. iTunes reviews, folks, are extremely important. They're the lifeblood of any podcast. Please go onto iTunes and write us a a glowing review. And don't forget, finally, you can email me where I'm Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D, at gmail.com. See you all again in seven days' time for more good music and great conversation. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.